Hello, and welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the ups and downs of the creative process and how to keep it moving. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. I am a writer, singer, improv comedy newbie, science fiction geek, and creativity coach who loves helping right-brained folks get unstuck. I am so excited to be coming to you with interviews and coaching calls to show you the depth and breadth both of creative pursuits and creative people, to give you some insight into their experiences, and to inspire you. Rupert Goodwin's love of technology and writing has led him down a career path that includes tech journalism, both written and broadcast, and playwriting, with a love of tinkering along the way. His tech diary for ZDNet UK is widely considered to be the first blog. I've known Rupert for about 30 years, though as you'll hear, we've long since lost track of exactly how we met online, and we reconnected this past summer on Twitter. We covered his early love affair with technology, his affection for Clive James's writing, and how he ended up writing The Big Data Show in Scotland. From the very beginning, Rupert's story has been, as you're about to hear, all about following his curiosity. I'm totally psyched that we are getting to do this finally, because I know that there are like so many things that I could have asked you when I saw you in October, and Mm. I didn't because I figured I'd rather wait for now. So So anyway, thanks for being here. It's an absolute pleasure. (laughs) So, So tell me how it is that you got started, and, and I'm not even sure what the what the right thing is to ask about here, if it's got started with writing or if it's got interested in techie stuff. I don't know which came first for you. It's, it's very hard to say. It's all, all, all early childhood stuff. So I was a very early reader. Mm-hmm. My, my, my mother bribed me with chocolate to read books. So <laughs> um, I've got very bad teeth. Uh, but I was, you know, I was consuming libraries by the time I was seven. So I reckon that's worth losing a few teeth over. Mm-hmm. And I immediately discovered an absolutely, you know, total fascination with science um, when I started to take the libraries apart and, and scour them for goodies. Mm-hmm. So I, I would only read science fiction. I would only read technical books. I would only read um, uh, encyclopedias and stuff like that. My, my parents are horrified. They said, you've got to read the classics. No, <laughs> yeah. no said, but, but but Asimov is a classic. That's not what we meant. They said so. Um, yeah, but nonetheless, and and, and I discovered that um, you you could play around with electronics in particular and make these voices appear out of nowhere on the radio. So I asked my parents, "So radio? How does, how does the radio work? It's really magic." And my father said. Well, I'm a vicar, and your mother's a geography teacher, and we don't know how radio works. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had to sort of teach myself and sort of took apart radios. And then I learned to put them back together again a couple of years later, to everyone's great relief. <laughs> uh, and at the same time, I was really uh, starting to discover what journalism was, journalism was about. Uh, I don't know, did you see that Clive James died quite recently? No. Do you know Clive James? I... There are a couple of Clives that I'm familiar with, but I can never keep them straight. So remind me which one he is. Okay. He, he was an Australian who came to the UK to be a, a writer. And he also wrote poetry and ended up as a, as a TV chat show host and, and, and so on. He, he, he's very big over here because he was part of the original uh, satire boom. Okay. Um, so he's part of Private Eye and, and all that lot. And he was an extraordinarily funny writer. And about the time it was 11 or 12, he had a, um, a TV reviews column in a, a Sunday newspaper called The Observer in the UK. Mm-hmm. And his was the first byline I learned. Because every Sunday I'd, I'd grab the newspaper and find his stuff and read it first because he was such a good writer. You know, and I started to think, well, you know, perhaps I could do that. Mm-hmm. And I discovered at school that I, I, could, I could perhaps – not to all the work I should do as well as I should. But if I wrote a, 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 an amusing essay, that got overlooked. Ah. So I thought, oh, I know, the, the, the teachers and later the examiners are going to be sitting there, uh, sitting at home going through 30 schoolboy essays about how a, how a moving coil galvanometer works. And <laughs> uh, that's going to be pretty dull, so I'll put a couple of jokes in. And it, and it sort of came from there. So... so and then after 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 school, I should have gone to university, but 
didn't quite make it for various dull reasons. I did get an engineer, an engineering sort of scholarship. Mm-hmm. At the same time as doing that, so I was working in a defence company. This is about the same time that the home computer, eight-bit home computer boom was happening. Okay. I was, re- I was really getting into that, and suddenly there were loads of magazines on the newsstand about that, and I found that I could write for them because they were desperate for people. And it's sort of all to think my, my, my technology love and my love of writing has sort of grown together until I, I got to about 28 and I thought, well, I should do one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and decided that journalism was a lot more fun. And, and so it has turned out to be. Okay. So was there anybody who, you know, like when you were writing those essays and you were throwing funny comments in, did anybody ever pull you aside and say, you know, you're really good at this? Or did they say, this was funny, but cut it out? Or anything like that? Well, I got no encouragement from the English teachers at school. But from the science teachers, I remember a comment in um, from, from the, the chemistry master who said, you know, keep this up and you could be working for the Sunday Times. So I was getting that encouragement. Okay. Um, so I sure did my ego no good or no harm at all. But <laughs> And when I started to write freelance for the computer magazines, mm-hmm. then – I got a lot more feedback about it, and it it, yeah, it seemed to work. So I, I thought at the time, well, look, if if if, if either my careers go to pot, I can either be a journalist or I can be a, a programmer and a, and a techie, and uh, so I'm, I'm I'm sorted for life. And now, of course, journalism's collapsed, mm-hmm. and uh, I've, I've I've lost my eyesight. So suddenly, programming is very difficult. I go, ah, how did it Ooh, work out? Yeah. <laughs> well, it worked this, for a while. <laughs> I mean, worked for a while, and there's still enough going about, uh, and it's actually been quite, quite good because I've been forced to, uh, to sort of expand my uh, options a bit and do things I wouldn't have thought of doing, and that, mm-hmm. that's been, you know, not not so lucrative, but tremendous fun and all sorts of possibilities. So, uh, if anyone is out there who is feeling sort of mid fifties and end of careerish, don't. There are so many things out there you could be doing. You just go and try them. Fair enough. And we're going to talk about that eventually. But before we get there, um, I'm I'm curious to know, like, well, first of all, I'm wondering, do you think knowing now what you know that you didn't know back then, would you have been happy as a programmer? Uh, Depends where I ended up. Um, Probably not as happy as I am being a a writer. Because the the good thing about journalism is it's such a broader range of things to think about and engage with if you're a programmer you're going to end up working on this or that project for quite a long time Mm -hmm. you're going to end up with this or that speciality that you're going to keep going back to so no i could no i I would would be happy i think working in full-time cyber security doing analysis of malware and things like that because i've got a particular fondness for that and the program I was doing was very technical, and I was there when the first computer viruses happened, and I pulled them apart, and they've always had a, a level of that. There's so much going on there. And I think some of the very best work in computing is going on with people who are uh, at the edge of cybersecurity. So that that may be an exception. But I think the fact that I can go and talk to some of these people and find out everything they can tell me one week and then go to people who are working on the cutting edge of AI the next and then go and talk to people who are building the world's biggest silicon chip the next. You know, that, that's just for somebody with a terribly short attention span like myself, that, that's a far better way of doing things. That makes sense to me. You never get bored. Well, if I do, it's my fault. <laughs> Fair enough. And, and, you know, so I know for a while, you wrote for ZDNet UK, and I know this because I used to read your diary every week. Mm. Yes. <laughs> well, that, 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 that has some claim, and I, I'm not going to claim it myself because you can never win these arguments of being the first blog in the UK. Oh, okay. Quite possibly one of the first blogs. And in fact, before that point, well before that point, when uh, there's a system called Prestel, which was before the internet in the UK, uh, me and a couple of friends got access to it, and it was there for selling holidays and doing banking and a bit of news and a bit of email. And we started a a a, a sort of uh, blog called Micromouse, and I wrote about hardware. My friends wrote about software. And we also did this week by week. 
So we were sort of doing that back then in the 84. But the diary, which was about 96 onwards, I think, was it's certainly the one thing I've, I've done most work on. I think I've probably written about a million words if I had them all up in the years it's, it was been running. And that, that was a lot of fun, you know, just getting the pick of the five most interesting or silly or, or peculiar stories in tech of the week and just sitting there on a Friday afternoon and, and doing sort of two or three para takes on all of them. And that, that's, that, that's the sort of journalism you're very lucky to get. Yeah, it always seemed, I, I mean, it was, a, it was fun to read, so I'm not surprised to hear you say that it was fun to do. Mm. Well, it, it, it was, because um, I, I think there's only, only a couple of times when my editor got, got home on Friday evening, checked on the site, sort of written and screamed and pulled it. So they know that's not bad. I was given a lot of freedom. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, if, there's a lot of tech which is ridiculous. There's a lot of stuff to be excited about. There's an awful lot of hype. And to have the chance to sort of triage stuff at the end of each week, especially uh, during the um, 1990s and 2000s when so much was happening so quickly. Yes. Uh, you know, that, 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 that's, a very, that's a very great privilege. Uh, it got decent figures and it got noticed. And I, I did stuff off the back of it for the newspapers and um, a bit of radio work. So, you know, it, it, it was good fun. It was, I think, the closest I ever got to that dream of being you know, having a Clive James style TV review mm. column where you pick the, you pick the subject and you pick the style and you got to make some good stroke, bad stroke, ambiguously funny jokes. Yeah, that makes so, sense to me. No, that, that, that was a lot of fun. And, you know, I don't think I've ever talked on this podcast before about the fact that I used to do tech support. No. But I did once upon a time. It's not fun. I've, I've, I've done tech support. <laughs> it's burnout city, isn't it? Oh, it it totally is. And yet, I, I kind of have concluded that it never entirely goes away because I will get sucked into. I am going to figure out the answer to this, no matter what. And the next thing I know, an entire day has gone by, and then I go, maybe this wasn't the best choice, but I still want to know the answer, which <laughs> is definitely a mark that I am my father's child. Um, because he does exactly the same thing. But but it was the, the reason that I mentioned this is that I remember, and I don't remember when this was, you might, and I'm curious to know what what your reaction was, even though I read about it at the time on the on the blog. But I remember sitting at work one Friday afternoon, probably probably a good 20 years ago, and you had written about this new search engine that you had seen called Google, <laughs> which is how I came to discover Google before most other people discovered Google, which is feels like a little bit of a dubious distinction now, but there it is. Well, yeah, I, I remember because the search engines were fascinating to me. Um, you, know, you go back to Alta Vista and... Uh, Lycos and the earlier ones, because mm-hmm. what they seem to be doing should have been impossible. How, how can any one system sit there? And the internet was growing exponentially at the time. And, and you think, well, this is magic. How can I just type in a search term and the stuff comes back really quickly? How, how can it know all this stuff? And the mm-hmm. Google was the first time, because they're quite open about how it worked uh, when, when they kicked off. So from a technical point of view, it was quite satisfying to discover this and read about it and, and talk to others about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's clever. So I didn't understand the importance of their business model, mm-hmm. which, is, which is really has as, as changed the world. Yes. Um, so AdSense and all that. that, that took me. I, I've always been slow on the uptake for commercial stuff. I like the technology, <laughs> and I sort of think the commercial stuff is a bit sordid and a bit, you know. It's very, I suppose that's a very English approach to things. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's the one that really matters, and by the time we realise that, it's too late. So that's, that's yeah. one, one of my consistent failings. Uh, and I'm a sucker for a good bit of tech. So, no, I, I can remember that. And... Um, I can also remember very, very silly. There's a, there's a, at the time, there's a lot of discussion about what your homepage should be. Mm-hmm. You know, what should you have on your homepage? And on the site, on ZDNet, 
um, UK. We spent a lot of time building all this customized, you know, all these customizable options in for the readers, so they'd make us their homepage. So when they turned on their computer, we were the first thing they saw on the starting point for their searches. And about three months after Google came out, we looked at ourselves and realized that we all had Google as a homepage. <laughs> you know, and that 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 argument had been lost and all this work. It took a long time to stop trying because you, you, nobody's quite sure exactly how things are going to pan out. But we mm-hmm. realized quite quickly that now Google was going to be the homepage of the Internet and might as well get on with it. Wow. Did, did you have any inkling? I mean, I feel like the answer to this is probably obviously no, but I don't know. Maybe maybe you did, that they would be anywhere near as big as they are? No, no. I, I, again, thinking back to those days, the internet was growing so explosively, and there were so many unbelievable numbers. You know, the, the pets.com being worth more than British Airways, British Airways and things like that. Mm-hmm. It, just, it was such madness. You couldn't really say what anything was. So it, it took a while for everything to settle down and for Google to become the legitimate winner of search and advertising. You know, and for Microsoft to clearly not have won that game, and um, for lots of the very big uh, initial plays to have failed. So, no, I, I, I don't think, retrospectively, you can say, well, clearly it was it, it was going to be a huge success and be so important, but nobody predicted the cloud particularly. There right. are all sorts of things like it beforehand. There's grid computing and what have you, and the internet dial tone, all sorts of ideas. And you thought, well, that sort of thing, IBM's probably going to win that one. Um, <laughs> and it's not going to have any effect on the rest of us, just to be something that, that the big companies do. Uh, and then you suddenly have Amazon and Google uh, and uh, uh, Microsoft, who sort of have chopped up the basic cloud technology between them. And now that's changing because you're getting the AI coming into the cloud. And you can mm. see this all morphing. And, I, 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 you know, if anyone says they had a clear vision of this in 1995, 1996, I would be extremely impressed and I would like to see some proof, please. Because <laughs> it, it, yeah. it was an exponential revolution. I mean, at the time I started to get online in the mid-80s, it was, you know, it was getting off the second round of, of online stuff. The first round of the people with tuned the bits per second modems and the whole Earth electronic link and all that stuff. Uh, was 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 there and getting a bit mature, and the hippie utopianism was still very much alive. The idea that we're going to connect the world together, this huge web of knowledge and peace and love and and and, and mm-hmm. prosperity break out. And as you may have noticed, this has not quite been how it panned out. No. Um, and and noticing that happen over the past thirty years has been no, I didn't expect this, and I think. I remember how positive I was about aspects of, of the internet when it was just happening. And I went into the BBC to talk about CD-ROMs because I've always sort of had a, a sort of secondary job popping up as a tech pundit on, on the radio news mm-hmm. and television news. And after we talked about CD-ROMs, which, as you remember, were going to be huge, mm-hmm. um, uh, off camera, uh, off mic, the presenter said, so what's, what's the next big thing then, Rupert? Uh, said, oh, there's the internet. And they said, the what? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> oh, and I explained it, listened patiently and said, yeah, okay, maybe. Um, <laughs> I, 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 that's, what, that's where most of the world was in, mm-hmm. the, in sort of the, the early to, to, to mid-90s. You know, it all looks obvious in retrospect, but so many technologies had to come together. So broadband had to happen. Mm-hmm. For, for the internet to make sense. Wi-Fi had to happen for the internet to make sense because imagine using the internet without those two things. No. Right. No, not happening. Digital, you know, digital cellular has to happen. Um, and the first other technical things, really quite obscure things, like Windows had to get um, the IP stack and it had to get the, the IP stack where you could just make it work and you had to sit there typing magic numbers into a configuration mm-hmm. file in Notepad. Until that all happened... Nothing was going to happen. Right. Because really bits fall into place and begin to realize that the thing you never even dreamed of possible, this global network, was not only possible, but probable. And that, that was quite a, 
for somebody who loves science fiction, nobody in science fiction predicted this. Right. <laughs> and and just in case there's anybody listening who doesn't know, because there might very well be, the IP is the the number that is the web Sorry, address. Yes. So, you know, your browser Look, translates Amazon.com into the right numbers to get you the site that you want. So until well, you... Uh, had something that could do that for you for mere mortals well i'm glad i'm glad you asked me that professor um <laughs> so yeah ip actually stands for internet protocol it's not just right. the numbers it's, it's a right. whole set of bits and pieces it right. makes a computer speak the language of the internet and in the early days it was uber techie mm-hmm. no it, it really was you had no hexadecimal yeah Ooh, for, that for was before my time so uh, and and then there was a few coughs and splutters and bits and pieces and suddenly you bought a new version of windows and you just click the button and you put a telephone number and off you went and you were connected to the internet and until that happened you know it was going to be the nerds and the weirdos right right oof and little things like that which, which in retrospect seems almost forgotten but at mm-hmm. the time, you thought this this is going, this is one of the big building blocks of what's going to make things change. Computers got good enough to do proper graphics and even video and yes. things like that. I know. And when you think we can sit and watch net, Netflix in 4K on your phone in the bedroom, you know, in 1995 that would just be unthinkable. You'd come up with a thousand reasons why that would never ever happen. In 1995, well, okay, 1995 wasn't quite wasn't quite this bad, but wasn't too far beyond the days of people trying to do art with ASCII characters, which basically were just the characters that your keyboard could produce and a handful of others. Well, if you, if you remember what GeoCities looked like. Right, exactly. It wasn't you beautiful. Know. But we thought it was because we didn't know any better. <laughs> well, it had, it had a certain rough charm, like, yes. like cave paintings. <laughs> yes. But I also remember being a freshman in college, and that, which was the first time I'd ever heard of an email address or BitNet, much less the internet, and having a friend who took me up to the computer center and said, here, fill out this form and they'll give you an email address. And I thought, and with this, I will do what? <laughs> it, you know, but I had to fill out a form and explain why I wanted it. You know, and now they just hand you one when you walk in the door at school because Uh, you can't function without it you know but back then you had to have a reason and that was how i started playing around with all of this stuff before most people did that was 1989 so (laughs) too many years ago but um but yeah i mean it was it was so different and you know being a sci-fi geek myself you know it was kind of like this is so cool except that i have like two people to email and that's all. And one of them lives a floor above me, and it would be much more practical to just go upstairs and say hello. Yes, but then came Usenet. Right. Oh, Usenet. <laughs> Which, as far as Rupert and I are aware, is where we met up online, yes. but we have no idea where. <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's lost somewhere on the, on the internet. Absolutely lost to the mists of time, which may be just as well. But, <laughs> but yeah, oh, I, yes. was, I was going to ask you, though, about the whole sci-fi element of the whole thing. And, and since you used the word, and since it's one of my favorite quotes ever, the Arthur C. Clarke quote about how any sufficiently advanced technology is indif- indistinguishable from magic, mm. you know, is there is there still... Is there still magic? What's your favorite bit of old as it was happening magic? Well, first of all, I, I, I don't like that quote. I'm maybe the <laughs> only person in life who doesn't, because I think it, it, you know, there is no such thing as a sufficiently advanced technology. It's all there to be mm. understood if you put your mind to it. So True, the, but if you don't understand it, you know, if you went and you showed your iPhone to, you know, someone 300 so, years ago. Then, then, then if you don't understand it, then you're open to people coming along and telling you, porky pies about it and trying to be well, you know fake shaman so i know i i'm i'm quite quite i think people have a certain responsibility to try and understand this stuff i mean we've got a problem over here at the moment where local councils are, are forbidding 5g networks because of people saying it will give our babies cancer stuff like that which it mm-hmm. will not and and no to them it's english for magic that's true yeah so um Anyway, sorry. So, which bit of technology? What was the question again? Sorry. Well, what was your if if you're willing to indulge the magic metaphor for a moment? Yeah. What 
what was your favorite piece of this looks almost like magic as it was happening during your career as a journalist? Uh, well, I'm a huge radio geek. So the first time I sat in my front room with a wireless keyboard and um, a, a computer behind my sofa plugged into a projector that was, was beaming onto my wall, and I was typing onto this keyboard and pictures appeared magically on the wall, and there's no wires anywhere and no screen anywhere. I thought, oh, this is quite magic. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you know, as it happens, I know how Wi-Fi works. I know how the stuff works, but it felt like magic. It felt mm-hmm. like something had happened. So, but then I feel a way about even the most basic radio. I think think radio is the, one of the, the the great magical things we've made happen. And in, if you don't feel that way about it, you haven't thought about it very much. So that that's I'm predisposed towards that. Fair enough. I can I can relate to that actually because I remember the day that one of our professors ordered the first what did they call it airport with Apple that we had seen in my office and we hooked it up and I picked up his laptop and walked down the hall and printed something while I was doing it and just thought, holy cow, who ever would have imagined that you could do this? Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, uh, no, but then, but then I was, I was that kid who was seven. I built a crystal radio hooked up in the area in the garden, put on the headphones and hear these voices coming out with no, no power, no battery, nothing. I thought, no, this, this, this is the true, this is the good stuff. Oh, tell me more about that. Oh, I can remember it so clearly. The first time I built my own little radio, and people don't really build crystal sets anymore. Mm-hmm. They, they only need three or four com- very simple electronic components and an earpiece and a bit of wire. They don't need any batteries. They don't need any transistors, something like that. And you can pick up AM and shortwave on them because um, uh, they just – get the energy out of the radio signal itself to power the earpiece. It's it's the very, very first sort of commercial radio receiver, basically. And it still just about works these days. Not, every, not everything is digital. But mm-hmm. the thing I heard, it was on a Sunday afternoon. My parents were upstairs having a nap. I was left to my own devices. It was a sunny day. I remember it so clearly. And I heard somebody singing opera. <laughs> and, and I heard some buzzing and clicking and odd noises. And I heard the noise like a helicopter. And I thought, what are all these noises? I, I will find out. And eventually I did find out that the, the helicopter noise in particular was the um, a huge Russian radar station in Chernobyl. Whoa! Which was colloquially called the Woodpecker. The Americans called it Steel Yard. Um, and it was there for Horizon one. So it's one, it's the one that the Russians used to try and spot the bombers coming over from America by bouncing signals off the ionosphere. Um uh, so I was listening to this top secret Russian signal and I only discovered that later. And I only discovered later again that that was the reason they built the Chernobyl nuclear power station to power this huge radar. So, you know, and there I was at seven. Um, wow. The first things I'd done for my building this very simple little thing uh, out of the back of a, of, a, of a library book and a bit of wire thrown over <laughs> near his tree was, was tapping into one of these immensely powerful, weird bit of Cold War technologies and consequential actions and you know and I, I think that's one of the things i love about technology is you give it a little bit of work it'll give you access to things you had no idea were there when you found out that's what it was how did you find out first of all well okay so so that that, that was really my lifelong love affair with radio so I progressed onto better radios and started to read amateur radio magazines and talking to other radio nuts. And because at the time this signal was everywhere, it's all over the shortwave bands. It was very annoying. It got talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. So, so okay. um, people didn't know what it was. There are different theories. Of course, somebody said it was mind control. Somebody always <laughs> says it's mind control. But other people said, no, we've, we've tracked the signal. We've looked at, the, at all this stuff. We think it's this thing called an over-the-horizon radar. We think it's coming from Ukraine. Um, we think it wasn't here for. We had our own secret one called Cobra Mist, which we, we, we built in, in, near the English Channel. And uh, the Americans paid for it all, and we built it for them, and it never worked. Oh, Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I guess no one was really surprised that you had picked it up then. Well, no, I was surprised because this is my first ever taste of right. 
radio beyond radio one in the top 40 <laughs> yeah that would be a little bit different so and, and you know and uh, anyone who knew me uh, knew that i was turning into this intensive radio nut so people got used to me asking silly questions mm-hmm. and eventually i found people who had answers wow and then you just kept going from there did you ever anticipate that you know as part of being a radio nut that you would be on the radio yourself well i, I just the, being a radio nut not only is it about technology but i also love the whole cultural side of it as well mm-hmm. So I, I was that kid, always found that the local radio stations take part in competitions to win LPs or cinema tickets. Okay. And so whenever I got the chance to do a bit of that, I jumped at it. And I was always re- really enjoyed it and found my voice quite quickly. So it never seemed to me to be strange that suddenly there I was there 10 years after that. 10 years after that? No, maybe 15 years after that. Now, I, I was on, on the 10 o'clock news talking about what Microsoft's up to and things like that. It just felt like a natural continuum of, you know, my interests and mm-hmm. the, the more I put into and the more I got back. So it, it never felt strange. Now and again, I caught myself. Like, Ooh. But I can remember the first time I went to the States to go to a big computer conference. And I thought, you know, as I got off, off the plane in Vegas going, well, this is a little odd. <laughs> <laughs> How did I get here? Yeah. This is not my beautiful this is not my beautiful slot machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't been to Vegas, but I understand that's kind of how it feels to everybody to a certain extent. But it's it's yeah. intensely psychedelic and I quite like that. But another friend of mine who's with me turned turned around in the airport, got back on the plane and went home. Oh wow. <laughs> wow. I can kind of imagine that. Cause it is deeply weird. Yeah. But, yeah, but that's okay. I I I like weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of weird, let's fast forward a little bit to what you're doing now. Well, where, where to start? So, remember, I said that when I was sort of eighteen or nineteen, and me and my friends on this system called Prestel, but sort of the before the internet commercial system run by a telephone company in the UK. We were on it in a number of ways. So we were also on it poking around where we shouldn't have been poking around and testing its security and finding little things that weren't working properly. So we tried telling the telephone company that there are problems, they should fix them, and they ignored us because we were just snotty kids. So we started mm-hmm. to actively change the system. <laughs> of course and <laughs> And to cut a long story short, it's quite a long story, I ended up discovering that Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, had an email account on the system. Oh, boy. And I was logged into it. Oh, so boy. I, so I was talking to a newspaper editor about how bad the system was. By this stage, we sort of given up trying to get the telephone to do anything and try and shock them into it. And he said, yeah, can you prove it? So I sent him an email as Prince Philip, at which point things started to happen quite quickly. <laughs> I imagine so. Um, two of my friends got arrested because uh, we discovered subsequently that the telephone company, British Telecom, was just about to be privatised. It was actually sold off. It's a big public company and it's about to be put on the stock market. And that was the centrepiece of the Tory parties, uh, the Conservative parties, um, big policy for the, of that government. Mm-hmm. And by embarrassing them, making them look like they couldn't run a computer system properly, they thought it would damage the flotation. So mm-hmm. Margaret Thatcher was extremely annoyed at me. Oh boy! Well, if you're going to do it, do it right. Well, we had, we had subsequently because many many years later, I discovered a friend of mine was working in British Telecom's press office at the time, and we had the chairman of, of BT got two phone calls in quick succession. One was from the palace. And Prince Philip being extremely unhappy. And then there was number 10, Downing Street, and Mark mm-hmm. Thatcher being extremely unhappy. So he was extremely unhappy. And uh, the, the word was out to you know, get these guys. So as it happened, my friends got arrested. Um, I didn't. They got taken to court, found guilty of, of, of hacking. But there was no law against hacking, so they got found guilty of counterfeit. 
because they said you counterfeited the passwords when you typed them in. And this then went up and up and up. So it ended up at the House of Lords. So the House of Lords started, no, this wasn't a good law to use. There wasn't a law against hacking. So there had to be one. So my friends got their, their sentences quashed and they got, you know, everything overturned. And Parliament had to pass some of the first computer security uh, law that, mm-hmm. that happened. All because of what we were doing in our bedrooms back then. So this all happened in the in sort of the 1980s and early 90s. The ramifications continued until they got the Computer Misuse Act out. A few years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a playwright, and she said she was looking for a next next big subject. She wanted to do a, a big interactive play for, for school children. That's what she does. And I mentioned my hack, she knew about my hacking past. And he said, that's terribly interesting, but um, I don't think it'd make a, a, a you know, it might make a good film, but it's not really what, what I could use. Mm-hmm. And, then I, and then I said, well, you know, while, you, while we're putting the play on, we can be hacking the audience's phones. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the consequence of that glib remark had been with me for the past three years. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm now co-writing this play called The Big Data Show. We've had two years of workshopping it in schools and taking versions around. Next year, we're putting it on in proper theatres in Scotland and hopefully uh, England as well to audiences of, of maybe up to a thousand school kids. Mm-hmm. It's interactive. They download an app. They they play with the app and that interacts with what's going on the stage. And we tell them back to computer security and what it's like being a hacker and the consequences of doing things and what privacy means and how to be a good citizen, all that stuff. It's a lot, it, it should be a lot of fun and it combines really good drama and some nice surprises and what have you. So I suddenly find myself at this stage on stage watching the story of my 18 year old self being played out and, and, and being part of this really, the, the project has got a little out of hand to be honest. We're now part of the school curriculum in Scotland mm-hmm. and we, we, we are very probably going to take it overseas I can't talk about that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and it's just got this 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 inertia of its own, and it's a bit like listening to that shortwave radio signal and subsequently subsequently discovering that that's the reason that half of Ukraine is glowing green at night. Mm-hmm. No, the the thing I was doing just playing around with my little Sinclair ZX Spectrum late into the evening in the North London flat and poking around in this BT system. I had no idea that any of the the consequences would happen, let alone that you know, all these years later, I'd, I'd be suddenly part of the theatrical world and hanging out with actors and you know, learning all sorts of amazing things about what it's like to, to tell stories. Yeah, I have I have two questions that I'm kind of competing with myself about. The first one, mm. I guess, is which is weirder, going to Las Vegas for the first time or watching yourself being played at the age of 18 by someone else? Watching yourself being played at the age of 18 <laughs> by somebody else. And especially because we're, we're, we're doing the whole thing to be a, a completely inclusive because part of the thing is we want to you know, to tell girls that, that they are as big a part of this world as the boys are and they should Absolutely. think about it. So the casts are, are all women. At least it has been. I think it's going to carry on being all women. I'm the only. I'm the only old white man there. Okay. So to 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 to, to see the words you typed as a sort of juvenile joke in in 1984 into your spectrum coming out of the mouths of this tall, willowy, blonde woman who's <laughs> pretending to be you, it's just whoa. I would think. No, Did, no. Have you gotten they, used they, to it at all? No. Okay. No, and I, I, I can't go into the plot too much, but there's all sorts of bits of my early life, odd little bits woven into it. Because mm-hmm. my, my, my co-writer, Claire Duffy, is, is just been the very best person to, to work with. I'm not a playwright. No, I, I write journalism. I've done some fiction, but, you know, it's very crude first novel type fiction. Mm-hmm. And, and she's a really accomplished playwright and, and professor of drama and all that stuff. So I've had the incredible privilege of working with her and being the co-writer here. And I, it's, you, know, you couldn't have had a better crash course in, in, in writing and, and understanding drama. It's just been, oh, what would I have to pay to get that? It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that's, that's been a constant joy. Um, and so 
the psychology and the emotion of writing drama, we're trying to build people who come to life and you have to mine your own psyche for, 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 for the bits and pieces of that. Mm-hmm. That, that, that. I've always known that as a thing that writers talk about, but never understood it. And I do now. And that's, you know, what a treat. Definitely. And, and you've actually just answered my second question, I think, which was, how's the transition been from doing journalism to dramatic writing? Well, I'm still doing journalism. Mm-hmm. So, um, the, the, doing the dramatic writing is, is fantastic because now all these other things I'd like to do and wanted to do in the past and perhaps tried to do. And, um, I've, I now think oh, perhaps I can go back to those and, 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 and do them a bit better. So okay. there's that, but I'm still doing the journalism. I'm still writing that stuff. And that's, that's still, um, not as much as I used to because the market's not very good. <laughs> yeah. But there's still stuff happening that's worth writing about, and I'm still 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 writing about it. So so here's another question that may come a little bit out of left field, and if you would rather not answer it, that's totally okay. But mm. your your series Let There Be Dark about oh, yes. losing your vision, how did that did that come because I can't remember the timeline now, but did that come as you were starting to do the more dramatic writing or was it before then? How does that kind of fit into the whole creative world okay. here? Okay. Well, I, I'd, I'd done quite a lot of radio by then anyway. I, I'd, I'd done sort of seven or eight series of a, of a tech series on, on BBC Radio 4 was sort of the, the, the presenter's sidekick. Mm-hmm. And then I lost most of my eyesight in uh, a unusual uh medical event which i won't go into if you want people to know about it i would say to get onto the um uh, the bbc radio radio sound uh, bbc sounds and just look up let there be dark it's all there yeah, and i'll link to uh, it in the show notes too oh brilliant anyway so so i i, I was off work for a time back then because i was trying to get my head together and, and learn no, waiting for the eyesight to stabilise, where level it was going to stabilise, and trying to learn how to cope, and all, all, all those things. And at the same time, I thought, well, it would be really good if if I could use some of the experiences because it's quite an experience mm-hmm. um, losing your eyesight, and it, it, it teaches you a lot of things, um, makes you aware of, of a lot of things, and it's not entirely negative either because I've always been fascinated by vision and cognition mm-hmm. and when your eyes go wrong in a strange way it, it's like having a, a a new laboratory in your head to play around with interesting one you can't leave is a bit of a shame but it's right. still jolly <laughs> interesting and you get to talk to some really good consultants um so i, I, was, I was going through all this and uh because my, my partner's a radio producer he said well radio 3 is looking for personal interest stories that could fit into the essay. Why didn't you have a go at that? So I did, and, and they liked it. So I ended up doing this. Doing this. It was a pretty standalone thing. Mm-hmm. But I then, um, subsequently, this, I was, still, I was uh, executive editor of ZDNet at this point. But subsequent to that, I lost my job um, and uh, found myself freelance, basically. Mm-hmm. Um Try to get a few full-time jobs, but it turns out middle-aged blind people aren't very attractive on the job yeah. market, uh, no matter what it is you've done. But the freelance is fine because nobody cares there. So mm-hmm. I was doing that. Moved from London to Scotland because that's where my partner lived and um, might as well because you can freelance from anywhere, right? Met Claire, who who is up here, mm-hmm. and it all came from that. So there's a, there's a, there's a continuum of development there, but it's a... You know, it, 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 think things happened at their own own, own own pace and maybe not as connected as they seem or if they are connected not connected quite as thematically as one might wish mm-hmm. but I don't know if that answers your question <laughs> sure fair enough so you mentioned if you know you're in your mid-50s and you think there's nothing else for you to do that there probably mm. is. And I'm wondering if you might be able to talk about that a little bit more, because I think that probably there are a lot of people who think that there's nothing left for them to do and wouldn't have the first idea where to look for something if they wanted to. Well, I, I, I hate to point out the existence of this thing called the internet, but 
Um, I, you? I, I, oh, heavens no. <laughs> I, 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 I think it's going to hang around for a bit, you know. I think, mm-hmm. it's, I think it's a stayer. So, I mean, I've, I've, I've always been one of those, these, 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 these smug, annoying people who sort of followed their passions and it's worked out really well. Um, so that's how I know how to do things. So you, you find something that can maintain your interest. If I can't maintain my interest in something, I'm hopeless at it. Mm-hmm. Now, it it's, it's, it's an absolute character flaw of mine. You know, I, 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 my parents and my school teachers always told me off from having stickability. Mm-hmm. And no, I, I stick at things, but only if I like them. I, I have very poor self-discipline like that. I'm not good at things I don't like. But you can always find something you like, and you can find a community of people around that, and you can then find things you can do within that community that may work out for you. So, for example, right now, if you're a technical person, the state of the art in open AI tools that you sit down and play around with AI and, and try and, you know, there's tons of data out there. There's there's, there's tons of resources. It's cheap. It's, there's wonderful tutorials. So even if you're only slightly interested in that, you can you can sort of build yourself a little Lego set or chemistry set of, of, of AI and start mixing the tubes together you know and if if you're interested in uh well you'll know this uh, very well that if you're interested in writing fiction or drama there are big communities out there to help you do that mm-hmm. and when you you know a lot depends on your circumstances many people you know you're stuck because you have to put in the hours to earn the money to pay the mortgage and all that stuff mm-hmm. and and that th- then you know that is so much harder um but I, you know, in my experience, there's there's so much good stuff out there if you scab around for it a bit, if you're open to where it might lead you, and you think a little laterally about it. So, I, I, I you know, I don't expect, <laughs> you know, I, I quite like art. I'm not going to turn into a painter at all. So, mm-hmm. but I could find perhaps. Uh, uh, somewhere i could i could write provocatively about painting and perhaps get a bit of interest going there uh, you, you look at the skills you've got you look at where you want to be and you think well out there there's somebody who's done that and i'll try to find them and see where they're at it's I've, i'm a huge fan of, of of autodidactism teaching yourself stuff um and that depends on finding these sparks of interest that you can fan to, to, to keep alive and following those. That, that's really, I, I, I don't like giving people advice because everything's different, but that's what's worked for me. It's, it's, it's always been find that, find that thing that just catches your interest. And these days seeing where it goes to, you can do so quickly and it's, and as much a little depth as you want. And then I think if there is an opportunity there for you, you, you will find it. And you've pretty much just encapsulated the whole idea of why I called this podcast Follow Your Curiosity. <laughs> That's pretty much exactly it. And, and you know, you're also, it's so interesting because I just had this thought in the last couple of days that it's it's true. The things that, that interest you <clears throat> are the things that you're going to be good at because you're, you know, kind of like what I was saying earlier about I'm going to solve the problem, you know, I, yeah. I'm going to spend my whole weekend trying to make something work because, damn it, I know I can make it work and I'm going to do it. But it's not even just that kind of single-minded insanity. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's the reason that, you know, I mean, if I had enjoyed doing algebra, it's entirely possible that I could be a mathematician right now because it wasn't that I was incapable of doing it. It was that I didn't care. No. You know, I didn't like it and I didn't see why I needed to know how to do it, what it was going to do for me. So it may also have been an issue of nobody giving me enough useful context. But mostly it was, these are numbers and I'm really a word person and I'd much rather be sitting down playing with words than playing with numbers. And so, you know, in my spare time, what did I do? I played with words. Mm. So, it, it, you know, it... <laughs> Because now, well, now you have the the teacher part of my brain churning on this too, and thinking, yeah, this is where schools mess up, is that they say, you know, you're not applying yourself, and you know, you you could be really good at this, and not acknowledging the fact that if a kid's not interested, you can't make them interested. You can make them do the work, but it won't be as good because they're not as interested. Yeah, but I mean, everyone thought I was going to be an engineer when I was at school. 
because I was totally into electronics. Mm-hmm. To be an engineer, you've got to have maths. You've got to have good maths. Or math, as I believe you call it in the colonies. Yes. The, <laughs> the, and I was, you know, I was very good at simple simple stuff but when it got more complex i sort of lost interest i've got that interest back again now big time because i understand more of it at the time it just didn't engage me mm-hmm. and i realized that i was we're, we're doing sort of the uh, when you when we're doing the end of school exams there, there, there's some you do called mocks i don't know if the same in the states where you, before you do the actual public exams you sit there and go through the process just within the school mm-hmm. uh, and i did it i did an applied maths paper and I got predictably dire marks for almost all the questions. One question I aced, and that was because it was about statistics of electronic capacitors on a production line going wrong. And because it mentioned electronics, I was engaged. Mm-hmm. And I found it easy. And I thought about that afterwards. I thought, well, this is telling me something. And it's telling me that this isn't really for me, but I should carry on with my technology. Mm-hmm. And it's the first inkling I had of, you go to school and you're you're taught that you you learn all this stuff and you learn it all equally and you do your best you can for all of it and and then you go off and, and use use it with a certain amount of um, responsibility for the rest of your life. But if you're not that person, if you can't make yourself learn stuff you don't much like, you go well. I've only got the other option left to me, mm-hmm. and that was the first hint I had that while I was not doing nearly as well at aspects of my school that everyone expected me to do and this was causing people a lot of disappointment me too that perhaps there was a bigger story there and i shouldn't worry about it quite as much as everyone else thought i should and whether that's an excuse for great laziness or not i shall never know <laughs> well it seems to have served you well regardless yeah <laughs> yeah i could have done better I, I don't know. It sounds to me like you've done pretty darn well. I mean, really. <laughs> well, I don't know. I've, 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 I've got friends who are, are sort of professors of this or, you know, quite, quite big things in that. And I think, oh, perhaps I could have done that. But no, they're doing it perfectly well. What should I want to do it as well? And, uh, and they're not writing plays and, you know, taking them overseas probably and all of the things that you're doing. So they may be thinking the same thing about you. <laughs> possibly, possibly. Um, I, I was very pleased if a, a bit, bit of trumpet blowing. Um, a friend of mine way back is, is now a, a senior editor on a very, very well-known title and one I've wanted to write for all my life. And I discovered he was a bit of a fan, so I, I pitched them and got in. So, you know... Yeah. Having, having, having the right friends at the right places at the right time is yes it, it, it's, it's good stuff i highly recommend that as well by the way yes if you can manage it yeah it makes all the difference for sure so, so i have one other thing that has been percolating in the back of my head which is you know we were talking earlier about how like you know, Google hasn't exactly turned out the way we thought it was going to 20 years ago. And now we have things like Facebook and Twitter and all of those fun things, which Mm. anybody who knows me really well knows I'm not a Facebook fan. I'm kind of in the middle with Twitter, though. Hey, it's how I found you again. So I can't diss it completely. Um, But I keep wondering... There's the creative side of the brain, supposedly, though now I think they're debunking the whole left brain, right brain thing. But for the sake of argument, there's the creative side of the brain and there's the more logical side of the brain. And I'm just, I I don't know. I mean, it feels like the the techie logical side, and you may argue with this all you like because I'm just winging it here, but that all of the big tech stuff is kind of becoming so dystopic if that's a word if it's not i just made it up um it is and i'm and i'm kind of thinking like how does all of that interact with the creative side of your brain like how i mean i i don't have any hesitation in saying spending too much time on facebook is probably going to erode some of your creative capacity just because you're staring at a screen and there are all sorts of things that it does to your time as well as your thought process. But I'm, I'm just, I don't know. It's a, 
it's a half-baked question, so I don't know if you can do anything <laughs> with it, but I'm kind of wondering what you think about the intersection of things like big tech and individual creativity or even group creativity. I don't, do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, the, 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 a, a very good friend of mine who's an absolutely superb writer described the feeling of coming off the internet at the end of, a, of an evening just being there as hearing the gurgle of all your thoughts going down the drain. <laughs> sucked into oblivion yes. and so yes. that, that's that's something i absolutely agree with but i also find an incredibly stimulating place and, and the dystopia of, of all these big companies controlling our data what have you that that we are just embarking on a completely new course um and the thing i think will make me happiest i'm not going to answer your question i'm going to answer a different question okay is if everyone starts to take responsibility for making things change okay, and not get stuck in ruts, it's very easy to get very depressed at the moment because of the state of politics in, in the States and, and mm-hmm. in the UK in particular. Uh, but, you know, there's lots of other things going on, like China exporting authoritarianism as a service mm-hmm. to Africa. You know, you can find all sorts of things to be really worried about. You can also find all sorts of things to be really excited about. And it's up to us to make sure the good stuff happens and the bad stuff gets closed out. Um, and I find anywhere that people are talking about that to be exciting and, and, and energizing and, and something I want to be a part of. Um, but then I'm just an old liberal progressive, so what, what do I know? <laughs> but you, 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 in the end, I keep, I, I be, I'm one of the most irresponsible people I know. And I keep coming back to responsibility towards yourself to find the stuff that works for you, to guard against the stuff that doesn't. Um, you know, and look after yourself. If you find yourself being drained by the, these great machineries of the internet, just sitting there and filling your mind with, with candy floss or, 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 or whatever worse. <laughs> or worse well no i think i hopefully everyone on this everyone listens to your podcast will have decent critical faculties well that, that's true i will know what they're being served up and can think for themselves so even so it's very easy to get worn down and think oh this is this is awful but you can you can you can change that around you can say but there are all these other things happening we're just embarking on a completely new society uh, if you think what happens in the Cold War, we were all going to die in nuclear Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Now, that's still an option, so don't give up on that one. But we didn't. Right. You know, we, su- we survived a great big clash of ideologies, and that didn't, that didn't finish the way anyone expected. And the consequences of that weren't what anyone expected. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, that, that's sort of gone away now in a way that would have been very hard to say in 1964 it was going to right. go away like that. Um, and going back again and again, you always find society is a really awful place and it keeps getting better. Uh, you know, and uh, then bad things happen, it gets better again. You know, the, we do have, live in a society that has got the taste for progress. We do live in a society that's got the taste for enlightenment and is capable periodically of shaking itself up and, and, and fixing the problems. Now, I'm an optimist. You want me to tell that? <laughs> but I, I think if you choose to be an optimist, you can find good reasons for it and ways to engage that will perhaps give more hope to other people. I, I think you've, you've just reminded me how pessimistic I can be about social media and especially Facebook, which is why I deactivated it two years ago. Oh. And it was definitely is, the right move yeah but, i'm not gonna say anything else yeah. <laughs> well but you know what i did make friends on facebook that i wouldn't have made otherwise because they live half a world away so i can't i can't completely discount it but i think e- even these a cesspit, days you know even, even a cesspit can produce fertilizer but I, right. I still i think facebook is a particularly bad example and people should be encouraged not to be there mm-hmm but but yeah, I I think I needed that reminder that it's not necessarily all the bad stuff because there is good stuff that comes out of it. Mm. Yeah, like, like me being on your podcast, for example. Exactly. There we go. <laughs> Which is a great place to end. So thank you so much. This has been a really fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. That's our show for this week. I hope you found something inspiring in this episode. I know I did. 
You can find links to as many of the things Rupert mentioned as I can find, including an old diary entry, his series Let There Be Dark, and The Big Data Show. My thanks to Rupert for joining me and to you. Please do leave a review and share the show with a friend. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.